It is good to see you all. For anyone that's new, we have our junior high right here in this room. Uh, they are going to get yours truly today. I'm, so if I'm not in here during the word, I'm going to be with them today. Uh, it is, it's good to see everybody here. For those of you that don't know me, I'm, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. Today is our last week in the series on the ministry of Jesus. Uh, which it is not the end of our series in Luke, although we will be taking a break from Luke for a month. Uh, we start a new series for four or five weeks. Next week, we're going to go through misunderstood passages in Scripture together, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, and then we'll pick back up in Luke in July, July 2nd. Uh, but today, we're going to be hearing from one of our preachers, David Gilbert. Let's give it up. Thank you, Justin. All right. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Anybody else want to go to the junior high room? It's like a mystery over there. You're just like, what's going on? No adults allowed. Um, it's good to see you guys. I hope you had a good weekend. Mine was, uh, mine was interesting. On, uh, on Friday, Caitlin and I babysat a, uh, a baby cousin of hers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I felt like I got to experience what every parent of young children probably experienced in the mid-20-teens when the movie Frozen came out, because uh, that movie played three times in our house in one day, and I was like, if I have to hear Let It Go one more time, some things are going to get let go, and at some point, the cold does bother you anyways. Um, <laughs> that was... <laughs> That was the beginning of, of our weekend. Um, so I hope yours was good. Hope you don't have any Disney songs stuck in your head. Um, but I'm excited to get to close out this section in our series on Luke, right? We've been talking about the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and we've been here for about five years now. So I'm going to give you guys a recap of, of what's happened at this point. We're kind of, this morning, we're kind of going on a road trip with Jesus. Like Jesus has been on a road trip and we're about to start talking about what's the next phase of this road trip. I don't know if you guys, I'm sure many of us here have been on a road trip, right? It's best to think of road trips in like different phases. You have the beginning, like dewy-eyed phase where it just feels like an adventure. You have the way about midway through where like everybody's life in the car is in jeopardy because you've been together too long. And then you've got like, you know, the last phase where like you're starting to daydream about your destination and you're, you're positive again. Um, we're about like, not that, we're like in the middle of the road trip, but not in like a bad way. Like what I just described, it's a lot better because it's Jesus's road trip, right? Amen. Um, so, so I'm going to be kind of wrapping up this series where we've been talking about like the ministry, the nitty gritty of what Jesus has been doing and teaching. And just to remind you, this part of the series actually started back when we were in Luke 3 and Luke 4, when Jesus was baptized. You guys remember that? He was baptized in the Jordan by John, and then he went out into the desert where he was tempted uh, by, the, by Satan. Um, and then after the, the desert was when his, his ministry really kicked off. I said he came back in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. And you guys remember there was this episode where he went into a, a synagogue and he was teaching and they handed him a scroll and he opened the scroll and he began to, to quote from the, the book of Isaiah that was on this scroll that says, uh, the spirit of the Lord has been upon me and anointed me to preach good news to the poor and the restoration of sight to the blind. And he says, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your presence today. And uh, what Jesus was claiming there was like, I am the Messiah that was to come. I am the long expected one. 
Um, and then so he leaves that, and he basically just said, like, I'm the real deal. And then he goes out, and he begins to show that this is actually true. And so he begins to travel throughout the countryside, and he's healing, and he's casting out demons, and he's preaching in the synagogues, and his fame is growing, right? And so he, in, in Luke 5, we see that he calls the, the 12 disciples to him. And then he's still doing this, right? He's going out, he's teaching. Now he has his followers, his disciples. But every now and then, like, Jesus will say something or do something that's a bit rattling, right? It's a bit unexpected, a bit... Um, showing actually there, there might be more to this guy than just a, a new religious movement. Like in Luke 5.17, he not only heals a paralytic, but what else did he tell him? He said, your sins are forgiven. And that was something only God the Father could do. So for Jesus to claim your sins are forgiven was something a bit rattling. He begins to refer to himself as the Son of Man, which we're going to talk about this a little bit later because it pops up in our passage today. And he begins to call himself the Lord of the Sabbath. And then in Luke 7, 11, he raises a widow's son from the dead. And then he's also doing things that we're familiar with. He's teaching on the Beatitudes. He's interacting with Romans in a way that people didn't expect, right? He's healing their, their servants. He's, he's showing actually there's there's room for you in the kingdom of God as well, which was unexpected, right? The Israelites were expecting somebody that was going to come in and pulverize the Romans. Yet here Jesus is meeting their needs. He's, he's helping these tax collectors that were also in cahoots with the Romans. And I don't know if you've heard that word used lately, in cahoots, but, but they were. All right, it's the only way to describe it biblically is, is that. And then um, he's calming storms. And he also does something else pretty amazing. He gathers the 12 disciples to himself, and it says he gave them power, and he gave them authority, and they go out, and they begin to do the exact same things that Jesus was doing, Amen. all right? And, and one thing you got to know, I know that it can kind of, especially when you're used to hearing the Bible passages, you're kind of just used to almost seeing it as like one episode after, after the other, and we kind of lose track of like, where is all this happening, and, and when is all this happening? And, and what you should know is that most of Jesus's ministry up until this point um, is happening in the north of Israel, in the, the land of Galilee, right? We hear that referred to a lot. Galilee, Nazareth, every now and then he's, he's towards Samaria, and there'll be an episode here or there where he, especially in other gospels where he pops up in Jerusalem, but most of it is happening in the north of the country, and all this is, is taking place over about two to three years. And I kind of want us to put ourselves in the, the shoes of the disciples at this point, right? Like, say, um, this new movement popped up like two to three years ago. You kind of took a chance. You jumped in on it, and suddenly, like, everything is going really, really well. And the fame is growing. The power is growing. And the pinnacle of all this is actually what Tiffany preached on two weeks ago, right? When Jesus goes up onto the mountain, is transformed. It says that he, he appears suddenly like he's glowing white, and this cloud envelops him and the, the two disciples that are with him and says, uh, this is my son. The voice of God says, this is my son. Listen to him. And so if you've cashed in on this movement, like it doesn't get better than where you're at right now. Like your reaction is just like, yes, yes, yes. Like we are on the right side. History has proven us right. We found ourselves the most powerful person in the universe that's just about to lead us to the promised land. Um, but what we're going to see is that once Jesus comes down off this mountain, which is where he's at in our passage today, that something is going to begin to change. The Bible says that he is going to, because remember, all this is happening in the north of the country. Jerusalem is in the south of the country. And the Bible says that Jesus is going to set his face towards Jerusalem, where we know that he is ultimately going to lay down his life and be crucified. And so once this happens, once he comes down from the mountain and he sets his face towards Jerusalem, something begins to change, right? And we kind of know this because we're used to hearing that Jesus was... Uh, 
crucified and that he would raise again. But what we're going to see is like for the disciples, something doesn't quite click. But when he comes down off of the mountain, there's a literal change of direction for Jesus' ministry as well as a change of demeanor. Uh, everything that happens from here on out in the book of Luke is happening on the way to Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to begin to talk about things and do things different. And there's going to be this, this added weightiness to the things that he's, he's speaking. And you're going to see the disciples are going to start to wrestle with these, these things that Jesus is saying. And they're, they're trying to wrestle with who is this actual Messiah that we've been following and, and what does his kingdom actually look like and, and what are the demands on, on our lives. And so my, my invitation to us today for this morning is I kind of want us with Jesus uh, to set our face towards Jerusalem. Um, it's almost like we're going to be like looking down this road with him. And I think there's actually an invitation for us this morning to, to grapple and wrestle just like the disciples did with, with who is Jesus, um, what is his kingdom actually like, and what are the demands that it's going to make on our life. So if you guys are with me, we're going to read um, our passage. It's in Luke 9, uh, verse 43 through 50. So this picks up right where we left off with John, uh, uh, Elder John, not the disciple John, uh, last week. And uh, I just realized that was a bit ambiguous because we just opened our Bible. So um, Jesus had come down off the mountain. He had just uh, cast out a demon. People are in awe of what's going on. And it picks up in, in verse 43. It says, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, would you help us this morning to set our face towards Jerusalem? Lord, would you help us to look with fresh eyes at Jesus? God, would you erase everything that we think we know about him? Would you erase all familiarity? Would you erase anything that thinks we have him and this life that you've called us to figured out? God, we pray that you would move our hearts as we look again at your son, as we look at his sacrifice, as we look for his invitation to us. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we see here is at the, after, at the end of all this ministry that Jesus has been doing, that we've been preaching about for so long, he has set his face towards Jerusalem. And before he takes his first step towards Jerusalem, there are three teachings that he's going to lay out before us this morning. And you'll see in like each of the teachings, the disciples are kind of wrestling and they don't, they don't quite get it. And I think there's this, uh, there's this temptation when we read about the disciples and like, we kind of like, you know, shrug them off. Like, oh, they were just so like dim-witted and, and this kind of thing. But the, the, the goal this morning isn't that we compare ourselves to the disciples, but actually realize that we're in the same shoes 
Um, and so I want us to ask you know, ourselves this morning, like, do we understand uh, Jesus the way that he is trying to get his disciples to understand him? And we're just going to look at that through these three teachings that, that Jesus gives. Uh, and the first teaching he gives, uh, which starts in, in verse 43, that I want us to understand is that we serve a king that was crucified. We serve a king that was crucified. And that's in, in verse 43 through, through 45. And that's when he says, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. See, throughout the book of Luke, uh, Luke, the disciple, Luke, the one who wrote the book of Luke, you might remember at the very, very beginning we talked about him. He was uh, somewhat of a doctor, a very educated man, and he was, he was very meticulous in the details that he described in the book of Luke. And, and throughout this book, he's trying to paint a picture that Jesus is the messianic king of Israel. And this title, this title of king, was something that both Jesus and the disciples both agreed on. But the question that you'll see they differed in is what was this messianic king supposed to do? It was kind of like they had this, they both had this awareness of Jesus's title, right? Like Jesus knows he's king and the disciples also know he's king. But there's some ambiguity as to what that means. What does that look like? It's kind of like if somebody introduces themselves at a, at a party and they're like, I'm a doctor, right? Like that could mean a bunch of different things. I know we all assume in our minds, right? Like they probably wear a white lab coat to work and a stethoscope around their neck. Uh, but what if they're a psychologist? What if they're a university professor? Um, what if they're at a Halloween party, right? Like, I don't know, um, right? And so there's, there's, there's the title doctor, yes, which is accurate, but when it plays out, it could actually mean a bunch of different things. And so when the disciples are thinking about Jesus as king, they're not actually conceiving the full picture of what that means and the fact that he's the messianic king. Because you see, for a long time here, they've heard Jesus referring to himself as the son of man. We see that in verse 44. He says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And we hear that, that title given to Jesus throughout the book of Luke, but, but what does that actually mean? Uh, for those of us that, that see it, it's, it's actually a bit confusing at first. We're like, wait, isn't Jesus the son of God? Why is he referring to himself as the son of man? Uh, Jesus using this title, the son of man, wasn't necessarily like a flippant title, meaning that he was born of Joseph, though that is accurate. That's not what he's referring to. The son of man was a specific title uh, that the people of Israel had ascribed to the future Messiah that they were waiting for. And this title comes from a prophecy in the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7. So I'm going to read it to us real quick. It's, it's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And this is Daniel prophesying about the future Messiah. And it says this, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the cloud of heavens, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him, meaning to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion to which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man and the disciples know him as the son of man, like this is the main prophecy that they're using to shape their vision of who Jesus is and who the Messiah is. And there's a lot of good news in here for them, uh, right? He's one who's gonna be given dominion and the glory and the kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages are gonna worship him, right? Like including these nasty Romans that have been like colonizing Israel. Like they are, they are banking their hope on the son of man. His dominion isn't gonna pass away and his kingdom won't be destroyed. And so the disciples 
are basing most of their expectation on Jesus or from of Jesus on this one passage. Um, and if we're honest, like we do the same, right? Like we kind of base our expectations of Jesus and what he's supposed to do in our life based on like, you know, one or two cliches or, um, you know, a few verses that we like to, to pick out here and there, right? Like if we're living our life in a bit of a crazy way at the moment, we're kind of like Jesus said, judge not, right? Like we, we hide behind verses like that or, you know, if we're ra- ruffling some people's feathers, we're like, ah, they hated the master. They're gonna hate us too. Um, this is the one I'm guilty of, right? If I'm, if I'm being a bad son and I'm not calling my parents, I'm like, ah, but Jesus said, uh, whoever loves, you know, mother or father more than me isn't worthy of me. So, uh, <laughs> so mom, if you're watching this, I'm going to call, I promise. Um, kidding mostly, but, um, but yeah, like we, we run into the same temptation. Like we can kind of gravitate towards certain teachings of Jesus that fit our expectations of what we think he should do in our lives. And the disciples are just doing the exact same thing. I don't really know if they were cherry picking so far, but they just had this need that they were expecting Jesus to meet. Uh, And they had a verse that said he was going to do it. And that's kind of just what they, they camped out on. But if we're familiar with the Old Testament, we know there are tons of other passages uh, that prophesied to the Messiah and what he was going to do. And another one is in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. And this is painting a picture of the exact same Messiah, the exact same king that the Israelites were waiting for. But we see here that he's going to do other things besides just establish a kingdom that is going to last forever. Listen to what Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6 says. It says, And he, meaning the Messiah, the Son of Man, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so if we put those two prophecies, Daniel 7 and Isaiah 53, side by side, we don't see a contradiction, but we see a fuller picture of what this king is about to do. You see, we serve, a, we serve a king that didn't just come and establish the kingdom of God, that didn't just come and conquered, but he also suffered and died, not because his life was taken from him, but because he willingly laid it down. Jesus didn't just come as a religious leader to teach new things. He came for you. And he came for our sins. And so before we take a step further about what the kingdom of God looks like and what Jesus' demands on our life are, let me just say that Jesus first and foremost died for you. Every sin, every blasphemy that you've ever spoken against God, every hardness of heart that you've ever turned against him has already been covered by the blood of Jesus. And so before I go on preaching anything, if you find yourself here this morning and and, and you just know, like, yeah, I've heard about Jesus, and I think I kind of like Jesus, but you've never actually surrendered to the fact that he has covered you, that he has forgiven you, and put your faith in him for every single thing that you've ever done against God in your life. The first step this morning is to put your faith in Jesus. Because everything else I'm going to preach, uh, it's a bit, you know, for people who are kind of acquainted with Jesus, and we're just trying to follow him better. But if you haven't actually started following him in your life, the first step is to realize that Jesus has died for your sake and to cover your sins. And the first step is to put your faith in him. Um, and for those of us that have been following him, 
uh, for a while, we also need to know that, yes, Jesus has, has covered our sins, but, and, and, and he's covered us by his sacrifice, but he's also invited us to imitate it. So just as he said, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and we know he's going to lay down his life and sacrifice it for the sake of his sheep. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul says this to Christians now decades after this happens, right, when he's reflecting on Jesus and what he's done. He says this to the early church. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which, which means have the same mindset of Jesus, all right, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he what? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so if we claim to follow Jesus this morning, if we claim we're gonna follow him down this Jerusalem road, we need to remember that there's two things that are promised on the Jerusalem road, a cross and emptying ourselves. And to be honest, this is really, really difficult in today's age. It's actually been really, really difficult since about 500 years after Jesus' death, which was when uh, Rome finally made Christianity the official religion of the empire. Because you see, before that, like, the cross of Jesus was a very real reality. Like, people didn't have to kind of, like, metaphor it or, like, make it, like, this weird, abstract, like, uh, spiritual thing. Like, it was a real reality. Like, when you followed Jesus, there's a good chance uh, that you could be killed, that your family could be killed. And so when people were following Jesus in the early days, it was like that take up your cross and follow Jesus was a very literal inv invitation. Um, and so much of the early disciples that wrote the gospels, that wrote the letters, um, followed Jesus in this way. So, but what does it mean for us today? Like I'm assuming none of us are gonna walk out of here and be stoned to death. Um, and so what does it look like? And I think we kind of find an answer to that in the second teaching, which is, uh, in Luke 9, 46 through 48. And it says this, I'm just gonna reread it. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is the greatest. All right, so what does this look like? Go volunteer for Z kids. Um, Yes, and, and yeah, do it. Um, but obviously, no, there's, there's more that Jesus is getting at here, though volunteering for Z kids is a great, very practical first step. And, uh, but really what Jesus is showing us here is that the kingdom that he invites us into is a kingdom of downward mobility. We've heard of upward mobility, but Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of downward mobility. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, short and simple, it's basically the exact opposite of how this world is oriented. This world is oriented to jockey for influence and greatness and power. Uh, but Jesus is saying, my kingdom is the exact opposite of this, right? And so we find the disciples at the beginning of this passage actually arguing about this, right? They're, they're saying, you know, I'm the greatest. No, you're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. And the question is, like, why are the disciples even arguing about this in the first place? Like, if you guys remember at the beginning of Luke, like, these guys were fishermen, right? It wasn't a very lucrative job, very, like, simple. Like, there's, there was no, like, expectation of greatness there. But suddenly... They have, uh, I guess I can say the audacity, though I kind of understand their reasoning. They have the audacity to be arguing about who is the greatest and where is this coming from all of a sudden? Well, if you guys remember back at the beginning of Luke 9, what did Jesus do? He had just endowed all of his disciples with authority and with power 
to do what? To go out and do the things that Jesus was doing, to heal others, to cast out demons, to care for others. But suddenly, I mean, it only took one chapter of them having power and authority, and look what's happened. They've already become conceited and puffed up and are arguing amongst one another. Do you see how easy it is that power corrupts? Even power from God, right? This isn't that they were just given like a seat in government or that they were given a household. They were given a good gift from God, and it only took one chapter that it suddenly corrupted their hearts, right? Jesus says that it's because of the reasoning of their hearts that they're arguing about this. And they're already trying to say, no, I'm greater. And they've taken the kingdom of God and they've tried to uh, supplement it with a view from the kingdom of the world. So what does Jesus do? What is his remedy to this? He puts a child in front of them. Um, we, we sent all of our children away, so I can't put one here for an example. But um, he put a child in front of them. And why did he do this? Was it because he wanted them to be childlike and innocent and these kind of things. There is another verse, right, that he says you must have faith like a child, but that's actually not what Jesus is doing here. He puts a child in front of them because at the time, the children were actually the lowest people on the societal totem pole, all right? There was nobody who had less rights, less influence, less importance in the society of Jesus' day than a child. And there's many reasons for that. Uh, I'm not like an expert in, in early first century history, but I mean, some of my guesses would be like, I don't know, there was a high child mortality rate. Like, you didn't know if children were going to be there forever. You kind of kind of had to just, like, let them be until they got to a certain age when you knew, like, okay, I think they're going to survive. They're going to make it. They're going to form into a functional member of society. But before that, you just really didn't know, right? And so he puts a child in front of them, and he says, do you want to you be great? He says, care for the lowest of the low in society. You want to be great? Receive this one. Care for this one. Look after this one's needs. Give him something to drink. Give, give her care when she's sick. He says, you want to be great, care for the least. And when you receive the lowly, right? He doesn't say just care for the least because it's what a good person does. He says, when you receive the lowly, you also receive me. You see, we find Jesus in the face of the poor and the lowly. And whenever we become lowly with them, then we become great. Not because our position in society has now suddenly elevated because we did enough charity, but because we've encountered more of Jesus as we've served those who are lowly. And we can read that, and I think like in our Christian, when our Christian hat is on, we're like, yes and amen. Yes, we gotta help people. Yes, we gotta do good things. Um, but when we walk out of church and we have our hat of a New Yorker back on, or just somebody who's in the 21st century, right? Like it's, it's suddenly like th those two don't compete or don't, don't compute. Uh, you know, like nobody has seen Forbes, you know, like the big business magazine. They don't release like top 30 sacrificial charitable people of the year, do they? No, they release articles like here's the top 30 millionaires of the world and this is how they did it. You know, these are the type of people that you should emulate as you hustle and grind and try to get yours. Um, but Jesus has extended us a kingdom that operates in a completely different way. Um, and the truth is that Following the name of Jesus, remember, if we're going to follow him down this Jerusalem road, we know it leads to a cross. We know it leads to emptying ourselves. And it also leads to us posturing ourselves towards the lowly. Did you know that that was actually how Christians got their names in the first place? Right? The, the early uh, pagans, the early people that were around Christians as churches were starting to pop up, like they, the Christians weren't calling themselves Christians. But the early people around them were seeing them operate in this way that reminded them of Jesus and how he walked when he was on the earth. And they began to call them Christians, which meant little Christ. Like Christians got their initial fame and their initial name because of the way that they treated the poorest of the poor in society. Not because they had really fancy churches, not because they were really influential people, but simply because they acted like Jesus and were Jesus's way 
towards the low. I have a few, few quotes from history because I am a history nerd. Uh, and so some of these things encourage me. So there was a guy named Eusebius who was an early church historian. And he wrote this about the early church. He said, uh, during the time of a, of, of a plague, of a famine, it said, all day long, some of them, meaning the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and, disturbed, or, and distributed bread to them all. So they took the sick and the dying and they fed them. And after the, the, the dying people died, they made sure that they were buried. These were the things that the early people around the Christians were witnessing them do. And then there was another guy named Julian who was actually this very antagonistic, anti-Christian Roman emperor. And he said this, he says, they support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. So he was like, the Christians are outdoing our ability to take care of our own poor. And these were the things that were putting Christians on the map in the early church. So the way of Jesus has always involved us orienting ourselves around the lowly and around the poor. And if we follow him, we should be expecting to do the same. I saw a really, uh, a really humbling example of this in my own life once. Uh, I met this guy who was a missionary in, in South America, and he was uh, running, or he was helping run an orphanage in South America uh, and carrying caring for kids there. And I had met him in the States and I was kind of talking to him about what he was doing. And he had actually just finished up a, a master's degree in like nonprofit organization or something like that. I'd gone to school for a few years, just learning how to, to run and manage nonprofits better. And I was like, well, what's next? He's like, I'm going back to South America. He said, I'm going to take everything that I just learned and paid thousands and thousands of dollars to learn over the last two, three years. He says, I'm going to go import it back to the people who are running the orphanage in South America. And I was like, well, that's, that's like really, really cool. I was like, but what, like, what inspires you to do that? Why are you doing that? And he says, he said, man, the, the, he's like, I've learned the kingdom of God is all about downward mobility. He says, it's not about climbing to the next ladder. He says, any, any amount of privilege, any amount of the ladder that we've climbed, it should always be to reach down and help others back up. And, uh, and yeah, and this, this really blew my mind because at the end of the day, this guy could have gotten this master's degree and he could have stayed in the United States. He could have gotten like a, a cushy job at like a nonprofit, you know, and helped them run it here in the States and probably even felt really, really good about himself. But instead he was going back into the jungles of South America, was gonna go back to living on a missionary salary just so that he could take what he had learned and use it to help the lowly for the sake of the kingdom. And so that's what I mean when I say that we are invited into a kingdom of downward mobility. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a bit more like some practical ins and outs of what I think this can look like in our lives here in, in New York City. Uh, before I do that, I just want to look really quickly at the last teaching uh, before Jesus embarks on the road to Jerusalem. And it says this, it says, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is, against, one who is not against you is for you. So the last thing I want us to see as we turn our faces towards Jerusalem with Jesus is that the kingdom of God is not exclusionary. Now, what do I mean that? I don't mean that in like a, a universal way in terms of like everybody's in the kingdom, everybody's out of the kingdom. That's a much longer, more complicated sermon. I'm not preaching tonight, but, but what I do want us to know is that as we follow Jesus, we need to remember that we don't have a monopoly on him or his work, all right? So you see the, the 12, they're, they're ministering, they're working, they're following Jesus, and all of a sudden, they see a guy doing the exact same thing that they're doing. Have you ever had that happen? Like, 
you're like in with a certain type of music or like a certain brand you think nobody else knows about and all of a sudden you see somebody wearing like the exact same shirt that you didn't think anybody else knew existed or listening to the exact same music and suddenly you realize like your movement's been compromised and, and you gotta go find something else to be hipster about, um, <laughs> right? It's just a, a complete and total like unique buzzkill. And uh, that's kind of what's happened here. They've seen this other guy doing the exact same thing that Jesus commissioned them to do, right? Casting out demons, healing the sick, and they're bothered by it. And what bothers them about this was that this person that they just saw doing this work, that person wasn't present at the beginning of Luke 9 when Jesus gave them this authority and this power. And so they're like, Jesus, how is he able to do this uh, when he wasn't with us? And what we're seeing right here is that the 12, they honestly have the exact same tendency that we have. We're very, humans are tribal creatures, whether we admit it or not. Like when we're left to our own devices, we will always try to hem in and be like people, or we will try to gather people around us who are just like us, doing the same things we do, uh, operating on the same capacity that we do. And when we see the other, there's always gonna be a degree of suspicion and resistance. And we see that the disciples were operating in the exact same way. But what we're seeing here is that the Holy Spirit is already starting to creep and to work outside of the domain of just the 12 apostles. And so what does Jesus say? He says, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. In other words, what he's telling them, he says, their work, that person is working towards the same kingdom. That person is following the same savior. This isn't about the 12 just trying to corner off their piece of the Holy Spirit and gatekeep it. He's saying the kingdom is bigger than our tribes. And I remember, I remember experiencing this in, in a, a very real way. I was, I was working with this ministry group uh, from my church in Texas once, and, and we would go into this neighborhood. And uh, every summer we'd go into the same neighborhood and we would just do like, you know, puppet shows and songs and dances for, for kids and, and kind of just do like, you know, this like pop-up vacation Bible school type thing in the summer, if that means anything to you. And, and we would see the same kids every year. And man, these kids, they loved us. Like they would expect it. They would just come running, you know, and we would we'd hang out with them and, and just have a, a really, really good time. And we just remember thinking like, man, these kids, like they love us more than anybody. I mean, nobody can touch how much they love us. Except one year when we were there, another group came in. And it turns out this group also came often, right? And was coming for years on end. It's just normally we came during different times of the summer. But this year, our summers overlapped. And this other group, like, let me tell you, they had a sound system. They had costumes. They put on a full, like, dance troupe, theatrical presentation of, like, the gospel battle between good and evil. And they had a guy that kind of look like scary, like not too scary because kids, but you know, like you knew this was the evil guy and at the end he gets like pulverized by like sticks wielded by Jesus and the disciples, right? Like it was amazing. Like at the end, like I was... All right, no more clapping. It's dangerous. I'm not even like getting Pentecostal and the mic broke, so I'm gonna go back to being Baptist where it's safe. Everybody said really still. 
Um, so I was clapping. Um, and yeah, like, and I just remember, <laughs> I just remember seeing like uh, the leader of our ministry group. She was this really sweet, really old woman uh, that looked forward to this every year, and she was just sour. She was so sour, and I could just tell she's like, I don't want to share our ministry or these kids' affection with this other really awesome dance troupe. Uh, and I just remember kind of like seeing that, right, where it's like suddenly the kingdom of God and ministry just became a competition. And that's actually what Jesus, the very thing that Jesus is trying to guard the disciples' hearts against. And Zion, for us, like we have to be really careful and not think that we have a corner on the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is really just active inside our walls and the things that our church is doing. Uh, don't, don't get me wrong, I think the Holy Spirit is active and I think our church is doing a lot of really cool things and moving towards a lot of really cool things for the kingdom. But as we begin to celebrate that, we also need to be on the lookout of what is God already doing in our neighborhoods? What is he already doing in our cities? And how can we partner with that? Because there's such a temptation, even in the church, even in Christianity, to, for tribalism and for gatekeeping. Um, and I, I came across another quote, I think really spoken to, and I just want to share it because it was a quote by uh, Pastor Tim Keller, who actually just passed away uh, this week. And I was reading just different uh, remarks uh, by people who were just talking about Tim Keller. For those of you that don't know him, uh, he was probably one of the more influential pastors of New York City in the last hundred years. Uh, moved, uh, he planted a Presbyterian church in the middle of Manhattan during a really, really unchurched time in New York's history. And his church began to flourish and do really, really well. And he welcomed skeptics and he welcomed people who doubted and weren't sure if they really believed in Christianity. And he just spent time talking to them, answering their questions. And the, the gospel really began to move and people got saved and his church really, really began to grow. And uh, he began to see that there was just such a need in New York City for more churches. And he, was, he had gathered with some other people who were sensing the same thing. And he began to tell them, New York City needs more churches, but they can't all be Presbyterian. And so he quickly realized like the move of God in New York City was gonna have to far uh, outweigh and go beyond just a Presbyterian church in New York City doing well. And I think we have to have a similar posture that if the gospel is going to move in our neighborhoods and our city, we need to see Zion Church as part of a larger movement and collaboration of God's people doing God's work in the city. Um, I got to be kind of part of something like really on a micro scale like this yesterday. Uh, a, few of, a few of you came out and joined uh, me and Caitlin, and, and we got to partner with uh, this community center in Bay Ridge, not part of our church. Don't even know what part of like what denomination they're with, but they just like give out food boxes once every couple months. And you get to give food to the hungry, give food to the needy, but then we just also get to offer to pray with them. And we're just like in the neighborhood doing this thing. But it was like this uh, joint collaboration between our church, another church, and then this organization that runs the community center. And like, those are the type of things that the community of God advances through. It doesn't advance through like single churches guarding their walls and gatekeeping the Holy Spirit, but being part of what are the things that God is doing around us and how do we join it? And so um, in conclusion, as we begin to turn our face towards Jerusalem, we're invited to follow a crucified king as we empty out our own lives we're invited into a kingdom of downward mobility, and ultimately we're invited to a giant group project with God's people. And the disciples saw these things and they really, really struggled to grasp it, right? And this was for, for many reasons. I mean, the first was like it was new, right? Like they didn't have all of church history to kind of draw on and realize who Jesus was and what he was doing. But the thing I want us to also see, the dangerous part for us is in verse 47. It says, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, 
People, we have sinful, corruptible hearts. No matter what the world tells you, our hearts will try to guard. Uh, number one only, we will resist the things of God and we will uh, drift towards tribalism. But we must cling to Jesus and allow him to undo and give us new hearts. And just like a quick litmus test, uh, because even if you're trying to follow Jesus, even if you're doing things within the church, there's still danger that our hearts could corrupt it. And so a quick litmus test to know if your way of Jesus has actually become the way of the world is that it'll basically look like all of these points I've just pointed out, but in reverse, all right? If your Christianity becomes about you preserving your life instead of emptying it out, there's a chance it's been corrupted. If it looks like you trying to climb some sort of positional corporate ladder, even within a church or a ministry organization or even just normal everyday life, it's becoming corrupted by the world. If your church and your ministry turns into it's us versus the world, it's us versus other churches, then you're in danger of being corrupted. And so we must guard ourselves and make sure that we keep remembering that the way of Jesus, the way to Jerusalem is a cross. It's emptying ourselves. It's collaboration with others. And so what are some like practical nuts and bolts? Like what does this look like? What are some ways it could look like in our everyday life? Um, I've just got a couple that I want to throw out there. If you work from home, uh, what if God's purpose for you working from home isn't just so that you can work in your pajamas? Like what if he has more for you in that space? Like don't get me wrong. There are days, I get to work from home a lot. There are days like I'm rocking some sweatpants not ashamed, but also what if he's given you that position so that you have more time and flexibility to serve on capacities outside of just Sunday? Um, if you've got a promotion at work, what if that was for more than just a new car? What if God wants you to steward your resources and be more generous so that the kingdom can advance? If you're retired, what if God has allowed you to retire comfortably so that you have time to pour into and mentor others? Do you have a grudge against another church? I get it. Church hurt is real, um, but what if they were just flawed, broken people just like you are? And what if God is still working in that church to advance the kingdom? What would it look like to forgive, to let go, and realize that we're all still collaborating towards the same kingdom? Do you have kids? Um, what if God wants you to raise up a generation to serve the Lord or to connect with other parents and do that together? If you're single, what if God has given you that, not just so that you can wait around for a spouse, but that so you can live in devotion to the Lord, to serve him in radical ways, uh, to go to the mission field, to become a nun. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> unless you really, really want to do that. Um, but everything that God has given you is for a purpose, and it can be tied to his kingdom when we stay connected to the Savior and to the road that he's invited us on as we turn our face towards Jerusalem. And so we're going we're gonna to wrap up, and, and I'm going to pray and I just want to invite you, if anything in this is just stirring in your heart, especially that first point, if you realize, yeah, you know, I've heard about Jesus or maybe I've been against Jesus, but the first time I, I just wanna submit and I wanna, I wanna start to follow uh, this king that was crucified for my sake. And he's risen again. He's invited you into a new way of life that's far beyond and far bigger than anything you could ever dream up for yourself. I just wanna invite you to go and share that with one of the leaders of the church that are gonna be over here uh, to your right and just receive prayer. If any of these next steps have kind of resonated with you, if you're just trying to figure out like, okay, the Lord's given me these things and I wanna be a good steward and use it for his kingdom, uh, we'd love to just pray with you over that. And if there's anything else going on in your life, any, any burden that you've brought into this place this morning, uh, let us pray together. Uh, 
yeah, church, let's, let's just uh, start with prayer before we worship more. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. Lord, so much of the world would invite us to look after ourselves, to climb ladders, to accumulate wealth, to accumulate influence and power. And Lord, all of that at the end of the day leads to nothing. But Lord, you have invited us to empty ourselves and in doing so find life, to pick up our cross and to die and realize actually that's, that's the way to life. And so Father, we thank you for your sacrifice of your son. Lord, we thank you for the kingdom that you've invited us into. And Lord, we thank you for being a part of the people of God, Lord, that now we get to work together towards your kingdom and towards things that are far bigger than ourselves. And Lord, so I pray for those who have heard your word this morning, God, that you would help us to respond, that you would help us to trust you and to obey your word in Jesus' name.